Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. If you're local, come be my guest one Sunday morning soon. Our service begins promptly at 1030. If you're not local but looking for a church that you can watch online, uh, we live stream our services. Uh, the easiest way to find us is facebook.com slash calvary316, or our YouTube channel is calvary316.live. And so, again, you can watch the live stream of our Sunday services. I'm currently teaching through the book of Revelation. The title of our series is Revelation of the King. We are a Calvary Chapel in the truest sense of the word, and in the, in, the, in the way that we simply teach God's word simply. We teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, we pick a book, we start at the beginning, we work our way through it, get to the end, pick another book, and repeat the process. Uh, we will do that, Lord willing, uh, unless Jesus comes soon, uh, for all 66 books of the Bible. And so uh, if you're interested in that, again, uh, you can learn more about the church by visiting calvary316.tv. You can access the teaching media specifically um, at c316.tv. And again, uh, our YouTube channel, calvary316.live. Wherever you're listening or however you're listening, whether you're listening on one of our amazing radio partners or you're listening to the podcast, every episode of the Outlaw Radio Show is an, is a radio show uh, that is then formatted uh, and released as a podcast. Uh, so whether you're listening on the radio or you're listening on the pack podcast or maybe you're, you're watching, uh, we live stream the recording of the Outlaw Radio Show. When it hits the airwaves or it hits the podcast, it's not live. Uh, but you can watch the recording live uh, Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock. And again, the easiest way uh, to access our stream, our YouTube channel is outlawradio.live, or we also stream on facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. So again, if you're listening on the radio, welcome. If you're listening on the podcast, we're thankful for you. Uh, if you're watching, uh, we're so glad uh, that you're watching, that you're joining. Uh, as you're processing the subject matter of today's episode, feel free. Uh, to leave a comment, question, some feedback. Uh, Creighton Vaughn is uh, the man behind not just the live stream, but he's also manning those things. And then between these blocks of audio, we, we tend to talk about them. So let me kind of set the stage for what I'm going to be discussing today. And I've got a lot to get to with a short amount of time. I want to talk about Catholicism, and I want to talk about Catholicism in the context of how it contrasts with Protestantism. Now, right from the beginning, I need to make two important disclaimers. Uh, first, I'm talking about today's subject matter, uh, mainly because um, it was a question that was asked. Uh, my sister-in-law uh, was curious about uh, some of the differences, uh, wanted uh, me to kind of discuss it with her, and I thought, well, this might make a great uh, radio show, and that's what we're doing here. So I'm, I'm really answering my sister-in-law's question about Catholicism versus Protestantism. That's kind of the motivation behind uh, today's show. The second disclaimer is I am a Protestant. <laughs> I am not uh, a Roman Catholic. Um, I am a Catholic in the sense that uh, the word Catholic simply means universal. So yes, I am part of the universal church. You would call it um, in theological terms, the capital C church. Um, I'm not part of the Roman Catholic church, which is a bit of a different distinction. and has a bit of a variation. Um, being Protestant uh, means that I'm, I'm part of a movement that was born um, out of protest against several of the, the doctrines and practices uh, of Roman Catholicism going all the way back to the 15-1600s, which we'll get to. Um, continuing a few disclaimers, I, I, I do find that it's important. Um, if you're listening and, and maybe you are uh, you consider yourself a practicing Catholic, you're a Catholic, and right from the beginning you're like, oh no, I'm going to listen to uh, a radio show uh, bashing Catholicism. Uh, that's not my intention for today's episode. My intention is not to bash Catholicism, but to just kind of uh, expound upon the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism, and in doing so, kind of explain why I'm a Protestant and not a Catholic. Um, I, I want to say from the beginning, uh, really four things as part of this disclaimer, especially if you're a Catholic listening. Um, one, I am a firm believer uh, that Catholics uh, can be Christians. Um, I think the Bible substantiates this. I think Jesus' letter uh, to the church of Thyatira at the end of Revelation chapter 2 um, is a good indicator um, that, that, that Roman Catholics are considered, at least by Jesus, to be Christians. Um, I know some wonderful uh, Catholic uh, men and women, um, some, some individuals that I would consider to be, to be brothers and sisters in Jesus. Now, yes, uh, we differ uh, 
in, in our theology. We, we differ in, in the way that we practice Christianity. Um, we differ even in some really uh, close to essential beliefs. But uh, I am definitely of the opinion that you can be a Roman Catholic and be a follower of Jesus, someone that I will spend eternity uh, with in heaven. Um, uh, with that in mind, it should be noted that um, there are some really good people that are that are Catholic. Um, just because you're a, a Roman Catholic does not mean that I would think that you're heretical, or that I would that I would think that that we should not fellowship, or or that we should have nothing to do with one another. The second disclaimer, uh, again, really relevant if you're a Catholic listening right now, um, is yes, Catholics can be Christians, but we should acknowledge. Um, and, and I think practicing Catholics would acknowledge this as well, that there are a lot of Catholics that aren't actually Catholics. And therefore, by extension, I wouldn't consider to be Christians. Uh, there are a billion Catholics in the world um, in much the same way that, that, yes, there might be you know, a, a big portion of Protestantism of which are uh, born-again believers. There's, and I will acknowledge, a portion of, of Protestantism um, that is dead. Again, I think Jesus addresses this in his letter to the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. And so there are a lot of Catholics that, that really aren't Catholic, um, that don't follow uh, Catholicism, that are what you would call cultural Catholics in the same way that you have, to a large extent, cultural Christians in the South. Uh, in the South, uh, predominantly, we all kind of are born out of the Protestant movement, the mainline denominations, Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, etc., but there are a lot of uh, people that claim to be Christian, Protestant, even evangelical, um, but actually really don't believe um, what those tenets are and therefore um, really aren't Protestants and really aren't Christians. And so it's important to say that, that there are, are Catholics that are Christians, that are Catholics and Christians, they're practicing. There are also Catholics that really aren't Catholic. You see a lot of them, by the way, um, in the halls of our Senate and the House of Representatives, um, a lot of them who are Catholic, and yet their particular policy positions um, run really counter uh, to orthodox fundamental teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, which you would have a fundamental, uh, a large problem with that. Case in point, the new president, Joe Biden, claims to be a practicing Catholic, and he goes to Mass, and I guess on the surface he is practicing, but his positions on abortion um, run far extreme, uh, to the tenets of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, to the point that the Roman Catholic Church would have big problems with Joe Biden claiming to be a Catholic. Uh, the third disclaimer here, and, and we're just getting these out of the way, and then we've got a lot to talk about, is that it needs to be acknowledged that the Roman Catholic Church has been the source of some terrible evil, <laughs> and most notably, if you think about it, in recent times, in, in, in America, a lot of the sex abuse scandals and things that were covered up. Some real terrible evil has been done by the Roman Catholic Church as an institution. But on the flip side, to it, the Roman Catholic Church has also um, has done some some really incredible things that should be acknowledged. Like for example, um, each and every day in America, the Roman Catholic Church uh, feeds up to seven million people. That's an astonishing number. Um, the Roman Catholic Church funds and supports over 620 hospitals, accounting for almost 13% of all the hospitals in America. Uh, the, the Economist estimates that on a yearly basis, the Roman Catholic Church um, gives $170 billion uh, to charity. Uh, it's just a fact that the Roman Catholic Church funds uh, elementary, middle school, high schools, colleges, a lot of the educational system, uh, not just throughout America, but even within the inner cities that have been largely abandoned and neglected. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church um, has incredible outreach to uh, women's shelters and orphanages. Again, Jesus told us, take care of the widows and orphans. And the Roman Catholic Church should be commended uh, for their charity, hospice care. I could go on and on. Most notably, I, will, I would say that going back to the 70s, it's been the Roman Catholic Church that has been at the forefront of a movement that I'm a part of. Uh, that movement being specifically the pro-life movement. Uh, much of the funding, the research, the advocacy of, of pro-life um, is done, is initiated, is propagated uh, through the Roman Catholic Church. And so while the Roman Catholic Church uh, has recently... I mean, and even historically, <laughs> been guilty of some 
some really terrible things. And, and you get back into the, the deeper history, some of the, the sexual corruptions and political corruptions and whatnot. But it also needs to be acknowledged that the Roman Catholic Church has been the source of, of, of wonderful charity across the world. Finally, the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism are real. So, so that's kind of the disclaimers here. With the time that I have left and kind of setting the stage for a lot of the core differences, um, I want to I want to at least explain historically um, where the Roman Catholic Church got its origin and why Protestantism uh, broke. There was a schism broke from the Roman Catholic Church following the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2, and what we would call the apostolic age, that first generation of believers, largely uh, including those that that had been witnesses of of not just Jesus' ministry, but his death and then resurrection. Those that had been there uh, in the upper room to see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The apostolic church, um, within 30 years, had had come to dominate the Roman world. A a really astonishing uh, historical feat. Christianity spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire. Uh, no doubt, uh, this was possible because of the, the Roman roads. Uh, it was easy uh, to get yourself around the empire, kind of a new advancement uh, in, in regards to world history. Not just that, but because of the Greeks, there, has, there was a universal language. So the Roman roads and a universal language enabled, in a lot of ways, the spread of Christianity. But following the apostolic church, and you even began to see uh, rumblings within it, uh, quickly the church became persecuted um, by the Roman Empire. Uh, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. The, the empire was in a state of collapse. Needing a scapegoat, Nero uh, pointed to Christian influence, pointed to Christianity. And for the next really couple hundred years, there were waves incredible ways, brutal ways of persecution. The church was spreading like wildfire, uh, but that wildfire was trying to be stamped out by a very real enemy. Satan was not going to sit idly by and allow these things to happen undeterred. And yet, if you've ever tried to put out a fire, the more you try to stamp on it, if you can't smother it, the more you stamp on it, the more it spreads. Little embers being flying all over the place. And during these waves of persecution, you saw um, astounding explosions of the Christian faith, uh, you could say that Christian persecution really reached Zenith in 303 AD during the reign of Diocletian, who was uh, like Nero, a madman, but unlike Nero, was 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 very sane in his strategy. N- Nero was just kind of all over the place, but Diocletian was systematic in his persecution of the church, and it's during this time period that you had a lot of the gladiators and the things happening in the Roman Colosseums. You had Christians being fed to the lions. Um, it was a brutal time period. Again, histor- historically, it's estimated that for every one Christian that was martyred for their faith, four became a Christian as a result. And so Diocletian's trying to, to crush the Christian movement. But in response to this, Christianity exploded even further. Following Diocletian's reign, a guy named Galerius, an emperor, came to the throne. And in 311 AD, just seeing the tide, seeing what was happening, he issued what was known as the Edict of Toleration that put an end to Christian persecution. We're going to pick up this thought. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. One of the most important visions of the Outlaw Radio Show is our desire to challenge you to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on your own. The sad reality is many Christians fail to reflect Christ because they don't know what they believe or why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to the Outlaw Radio Show tackling tough topics you might not hear at church, it is our desire to equip, inspire and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this important process, we want you to check out blueletterbible.org. It would be an understatement to say that this website will transform the way you study the Bible. In fact, it will revolutionize it. Aside from their treasure trove of free online commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it super simple to dive into the original language behind a text. 
So if you want to dig deeper into your study of scripture and in the process, learn and grow, we encourage you to check out blueletterbible.org today. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I was asked by my sister-in-law to expound upon the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. I would consider myself to be a Catholic in the sense that I am part of the universal church, uh, but I am very much a Protestant, meaning uh, I am part of a movement within Christianity that broke from Roman Catholicism, protesting certain uh, theological beliefs and practices that were taking place within the church. Now, even within Protestantism today, there are a lot of divergences. Uh, I would very much disagree with a lot of the theology and practices of, let's say, Lutheranism, neither here nor there. In order to explain the differences, you need a little bit of the backstory of of what precipitated and necessitated the the break, the schism. Where did the the divergence begin? To do that, you got to a little bit set the stage. And we were talking about the, the persecution of the early church during the reign of Diocletian, 303 AD. For every one Christian that was martyred, four individuals came to saving faith. You couldn't snuff out what God was doing in the world. The emperor that followed, Galerius, in 311 AD, recognizing the dynamic, decided to play a bit of politics and issued the Edict of Toleration, which for the most part ended the persecution of Christians and Christianity, the institutional church. The next significant point in time came really the next year. In 312 AD, Constantine uh, led the armies of the the empire into a decisive battle trying to um, reunite, reunify what was a splintered empire. Before going into battle, Constantine says that he had this vision. And in the vision, he had he saw this cross. And God told him that in this sign, conquer. So as the legend goes, Constantine had before they went into battle, all of his army paint crosses uh, on their shields. And they went into battle and a decisive victory was handed to Constantine. The empire was reunified under his leadership. And because of this, in 313 AD, he issued what was known as the Edict of Milan. Now, there's some debate historically as to whether or not Constantine experienced a true conversion or not, uh, or was just, again, in the same line of Galerius, just a, a wise tactical politician. The Edict of Milan did something significant. Uh, not only did it carry forth the, the continuation of uh, no longer persecuting Christians um, or the church, but it restored church property to its rightful owners, and it, and it merged, it began the merging um, of both the church and the state. Um, in 380 AD, several years later, Emperor Theodosius, he issued what was known as the Edict of Thessalonica. And in this edict, he ordered that all uh, the subjects of the Roman Holy Empire uh, would be required to possess the faith of the Bishop of Rome. Um, And so the progression is we go from, we shouldn't persecute Christians uh, to what, you know what, we should uh, tolerate to, well, we should give them rights uh, to let's merge the church and the state to this full-blown requirement of everyone in the Roman Empire uh, to be a Christian. In fact, the Edict of Thessalonica is really kind of the, the, the point, 380 AD, in which the, the Roman Catholic Church emerged. Roman Catholic Church was headed up by the emperor, but his power resided in the Bishop of Rome, who would become known more traditionally as the Pope. What followed is what we know know as the Dark Ages. The idea that the state and the church should merge together um, was was really poorly conceived. Uh, Not to say that the church shouldn't have a profound influence on the state. Should. It's not why they should be separated. But that the state, we should be wary of it having a, a profound influence on the church. And that's what began to happen. Uh, well-intentioned, well-meaning, but over time, this unholy marriage between the church and the state, uh, the influence became weighted. Instead of the church remaining pure, remaining orthodox, 
remaining true to its beliefs, the church began to be used by the state as a means of, of executing power over the people. During this time period, the mass was conducted in Latin while the majority um, of the Anglo world didn't speak Latin. The mass was conducted in the, in, uh, in the language of the, uh, of the learned, but not the people. Uh, the Bible remained in, in Latin, um, translated from Greek into Latin. People couldn't read the word of God for themselves. Um, it was during this time period that indulgences began to take root, that certain theological ideas started to emerge, the, the, the notion of purgatory, the importance of relics, a corruption emerged. The church, again, was being used um, to exert the power of the state over the people. And this, this continued for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There was one state and one church and one leader. And that leader was located, was headed up in Vatican City. Now, the first kind of be beginnings of, of, of movement against Roman Catholicism and really the corruption that had taken root emerged in the year 1382 when an English theologian, again, a Roman Catholic himself by the name of John Wycliffe, translated the Latin Bible into English, the language of the people. Uh, following him, uh, another one of the early, early reformers, the influencers of the Reformation, a man named John Huss, also translating the Bible into the language of the people. Now, you would think that that would have been celebrated by the church, but it wasn't. In fact, it was viewed as being a very dangerous thing. Some 40 years after Wycliffe died, one of the popes that, that came to power had his body exhumed and burned as a heretic. Again, the people being able to read the Bible for themselves uh, started to cause serious questions to arise within the population regarding some of the doctrines that they were being taught. Things that were being taught, prayers of the saints, the indulgences, relics, purgatory, uh, the priesthood, the power residing in the Pope. You begin to read the Bible for yourself and you begin to scratch your head saying, well, <laughs> where are they getting these ideas? And it, it started to cause a serious crisis within the conscience of the priesthood itself. Fast forward to October 31st, 1517, and you had a German, a German priest by the name of Martin Luther, who in response to indulgences, so an indulgence was something that you could purchase. It was a relic that you could purchase from a friar or someone coming through town. And if you purchased it, uh, it would be credit towards a loved one who was stuck in purgatory. And again, we'll explain a lot of the theology uh, later in the show, but Martin Luther had some serious issues with this. They were trying to raise money uh, for the remodeling of St. Peter's Basilica. Martin Luther had problems. He was having his own cr uh, crisis of faith, reading the Bible for himself, understanding that we're justified by faith but then coming across the passage where, where we're told that the just shall live by faith, rocked his world, that the just shall live by faith. In response to this, Martin Luther nailed to the city church there in Wittenberg what is now historically known as the 95 Thesis. He listed out 95 things, doctrinal um, beliefs and practices that he wanted to see reformed within his church, the Roman Catholic church. Now he was not appreciated. He was met with resistance and thus Martin Luther, who was just trying to reform the Roman Catholic church, the reformation ended up initiating an entirely new movement. Uh, Martin Luther translated the Bible into the native German tongue. Contemporaries of this Protestant reformation would be John Calvin Zingli, Zingli, also translating the Bible into the native tongue. In a sense, the core idea of the Reformation was Bible alone, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Again, the doctrine that the just shall live by faith. And from that point forward, the schism took place. The Roman Catholic Church, which still maintained incredible power, Influence, again, this is the state church, uh, 
tried to crush the Protestant Reformation. A lot of these leaders found themselves experiencing um, incredible opposition, martyrdom. This is the time period where people are being burned at the stake. Dark period within church history. The church splintering into, again, the Roman Catholic thread, and then the Protestant Reformation. Now, digging into the fundamental differences, understanding where the split happened and some of the motivation behind it, I want to lay out some of the theological differences. Um, Broadly speaking, the way that we view the Bible, again, the Protestants and Roman Catholics is different. The way that we view the priesthood, including the Pope, is different. Uh, The way that we view sanctification in particular is different. Uh, The way that we view death and what happens after death in the life of a believer is different. At its core, I would summarize it all by saying the difference is religion versus relationship. Now, when we come back, uh, we're going to break these things down Um, into their particulars. We're going to expound upon them. I I do want to just utilize the opportunity to say that we want to hear from you, the listening audience. Uh, Our contact information uh, can be found at outlawradio.org. Our email address is info at outlawradio.org. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. We are on Twitter. Our handle is radio underscore outlaw. My personal Twitter is at Zach underscore uh, Adams. We podcast every episode of the Outlaw Radio Show, so if you're listening on the radio and you can't listen to this episode in its entirety, uh, go to Apple, Google, Spotify, find us. You can listen again to this episode fully. Uh, Wednesday nights at 8 o'clock, you can watch the live stream recording of the show. Again, you can find all of this information very easily at outlawradio.org. Again, that's outlawradio.org. Maybe you've heard someone say that Catholicism is the same as any Protestant church. We basically believe the same things, but is that really true? For myself, a big part of my mother's side of the family are Irish Catholics. Catholicism is a big part of my my family's faith. So today's episode of Outlaw Radio has been very, very informative, and we're only halfway done. So don't go anywhere. Zach's going to be back in just a moment with the second half of the Outlaw Radio show, where he'll talk more about some of the differences between Protestant faith and Catholicism. Is Protestant faith the same as Catholicism? Here's Pastor Zach with the second half of the Outlaw Radio Show. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. We're talking about the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. The truth is that when it comes to Roman Catholicism, the the theology um, is very universally understood and accepted. Again, the Roman Catholic Church is is one church, one catechism, one leader, one set of doctrinal beliefs, very little deviation or variation within Roman Catholicism. Now, you might find a certain you know, Roman Catholic Church that, that might have a priest who's a little more contemporary than, than maybe some others, but generally speaking, you go to Mass at one Roman Catholic Church in one town, and you go to Mass in another town, it's going to be... Uh, Very, very similar. Uh, One of the challenges when it comes to explaining the differences in the theology between the Roman Catholic Church, which which is very universal, and Protestantism is that over the last 500 years, the Protestant denomination or movement um, has splintered into thousands and thousands and thousands of separate movements based upon uh, various theological uh, positions and understandings. Uh, The reason that you have uh, the, the Lutherans and the the Episcopals and the Anglicans um, is because of variations in theology. The reason is you have uh, the you know mainline denominations of of Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians um, boils down to variations in theology, differences in, in theology. So you know as the church split from Roman Catholicism to Protestantism, as Protestantism continued, uh, uh, different splits occurred even within that movement. And so trying to pin down like the universal ideas of, 
Protestantism is difficult because there's a lot of variation even within the Protestant movement. And then you get into, again, non-denominationalism, its own thing, and the variations continue. So we're going to have to kind of address this a little bit broadly. Um, but but I think I think I can do this as succinctly as possible. First, I laid out before we, we went to break, generally, what I see to be some of the significant differences. And I, and I want to work through them now systematically. Again, I think that the umbrella, the overarching difference is, and I'll speak really personally, the difference between a Roman Catholic and me is, again, how what I would perceive to be a, a religious expression versus a personal relationship. And we'll, we'll get to all of that. First, the significant, and I would say that the, 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 the big difference that, pushed a lot of the other differences is it's what's known as sola scriptura. And what that means in layman's terms is that Martin Luther, the reformers, the Protestant reformation, Protestantism believes in Bible alone. And that's the idea that God has chosen to reveal himself and specifically Jesus, his, his person, his thoughts, his intentions, through his word, that the word of God is the primary and sole mechanism through which God communicates to humanity. Well, Roman Catholicism has a bit of a different position. Now, don't get me wrong. Roman Catholics believe in the Bible. They read the Bible. They study the Bible. They cherish the Bible. But Roman Catholics believe not just in the Bible as being the only authority or mechanism by which God communicates to humanity, but that they believe that it's the Bible and what's generally known as as Catholic traditions that are equally binding. And these Catholic traditions are are determined by uh, the leadership of the Catholic Church, specifically the Pope, which we'll get to in a moment, but that, yes, it's the Bible, but also Catholic traditions, and that these traditions, these oral traditions that have been written down, and, and the Word of God, are on equal footing. In fact, you'll find some Catholics that will refer to them as being the two pillars of the faith. And so, while Protestants believe that that I have the word of God and it's the word of God that is God's revelation to man. That's all I need. That's that that's Roman Catholics also equate. Yes. The Bible in addition to Catholic tradition. And one of the reasons that they do this is to justify certain theological positions that simply aren't biblical. Uh, For example, the, the, the concept of purgatory praying to the saints uh, the veneration of Mary, the idea of the celibacy of the priesthood, more extreme concepts of, of indulgences and icons as being a, a means of securing or procuring a, a way out of purgatory. All of these things, a lot of Catholic doctrine is not found in the pages of Scripture. And again, this is what led to a lot of the, the Protestant Reformation because they're reading the Bible and they're saying, well, wait a second, what's the authority? Is it the authority of God's word or is it the authority of these men? And particularly during their time period, these men who had the authority were very corrupt and they were manipulating the system for their own power and gain. A great example of this is what we would call the Apocrypha. So the the Protestant Bible and the Roman Catholic Bible are actually quite different. Now, yes, we have an Old Testament and a New Testament, but the Roman Catholic Church accepts 11 or or 12 books, depending on how you break them down, we would call the Apocrypha, that were written during a period of time uh, at the close of Malachi and the opening of the Gospel of Matthew. So at the end of the Old Testament, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there are these 11 or 12 other books that they have accepted as part of their canon or their Bible. Now, there are significant problems to this. Uh, I could spend a whole episode dealing with it. First, the Hebrews didn't accept them. They weren't part of the, Je- the Bible that Jesus, uh, Jesus read. Jesus never quoted. You know, Jesus quoted from all Old Testament books, but he never quoted uh, from the Apocrypha. So Jesus didn't see them as divinely inspired, authoritative 
authoritatively being the word of God. And, and then the, the dirty little secret is, again, the Roman Catholic Church beginning in 380 AD, they didn't accept <laughs> the Apocrypha of these books as part of, a part of their Bible until it was ratified in the Council of Trent in 1546. And why would they have done this at this point? Well, we're in the early days of the Protestant Reformation, the people are reading the Bible for themselves and all of these theological positions that aren't found in the Bible, they now need some justification for. And so during the Council of Trent, they included these books that had never been included in the Bible before, even in the Catholic Bible, because within their pages, they were able to point and justify certain types of theological positions. And so the, the first big difference between Catholics and Protestants is that I believe the all I need is the Bible which is why at Calvary 316, that's what we do. We teach the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That I believe that, that, that it's the Bible, that within the Bible is everything that man needs for correction, for reproof, for growth. That it is, it is water to quench one's thirst and it is the bread of life to feed one's soul. Roman Catholics would agree, but add to it their own traditions, which leads to kind of the, the second uh, divergence. And that is the, the entire concept of both the Pope and the priesthood. Now, first the Pope is called officially within Roman Catholic terms, the vicar of Christ. And what, what that means is that the, the Protestants, I would, I would say that it's Jesus. Jesus says, this is my church. That Jesus is the head of the church that Jesus is the head of Calvary 316, that he's the pastor of the church. Roman Catholics wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but they would say that the extension of Jesus's headship takes place through a succession of individual leaders we know as the Pope, that the vicar, vicar means substitute, that the Pope is, is a stand-in for Jesus. He acts as Jesus's representative. He's the head of the church. And because he hold such a lofty position, such a significant position, the Pope, he can speak in infallible terms, that the words, the teachings, the official proclamations of the Pope are on par with the word of God. So what the Pope says is God's word. And thus the Pope can issue, issue proclamations which opens up a whole big can of worms, again, leading to uh, the Reformation where we say, no, I've got Jesus and his word. I don't need a, a man and his edicts also being on par with the word of God as if he's infallible. And again, we can go through uh, example after example after example of statements of the popes in which popes are not infallible. And in fact, they were very corrupt and sometimes wicked people uh, within history. The idea moving forward is that church authority, again, the establishing of church tradition, uh, comes from a succession, beginning with Peter, of popes and not necessarily the word of God. That dovetails into the position of the priest. Um, I would completely disagree with the position, the authority, the role of a priest within the Roman Catholic Church. There is not an equivalent of that within Protestantism. Uh, I believe in what's called the priesthood of the believer, that Jesus is the high priest, that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, and that I don't need a man to stand between me and Jesus, that Jesus has torn down that wall of separation. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue this. You're listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. Did you know beyond the unique content of the Outlaw Radio Show, Pastor Zach Adams also has an extensive teaching archive available online for free? If you love to study the Bible, we encourage you to check out c316.tv. Currently, Pastor Zach is teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John, but c316.tv also has video, audio, and sermon notes for the Gospel of Mark, the book of Acts, Ephesians, Genesis, Philemon, Jonah, Philippians, as well as an in-depth study on the Olivet Discourse and Jesus' seven letters to the churches recorded in Revelation 3 and 4. 
with over 17,000 minutes of expositional Bible teaching and more than 2,775 pages of written sermon transcripts, C316.tv is a must visit for any serious student of the Bible. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I'm talking about the differences between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. First, the Protestants believe that all we need is God's Word. Roman Catholics believe that God's Word is, is fine, but also the, the traditions of the Catholic Church and the proclamations of the Pope carry the same weight. Again, this being used to justify certain doctrines and practices that aren't necessarily biblical, but because the Pope is the extension of Jesus on earth, it carries the same weight. The idea of a Pope is, again, a foreign idea uh, a man being infallible. There was only one infallible man. His name was Jesus. That all we need is the word of God, not the word of this man. But more broadly speaking, the idea that, that man needs a priest to be his intermediary between, between him and God. Again, the role of the priest is that within the Roman Catholic Church, you go to the priest who then intercedes on your behalf before God. Thus, you make confession to your priest. Your priest intercedes for you. Thing is, is the Bible talks about the priesthood of the believer. That, that there's nothing or nor no one that stands between me and Jesus. That through what Jesus did, I've been given full access to the throne of grace. That my prayers don't need to go through another human being to get to the throne room of God. I have full access. Thus, I don't need to pray to a saint. I don't need to pray... Uh, through a priest, uh, I can pray directly to Jesus, which is why I pray in his name. Amen. So the idea of this, this human intermediary, this mediator, is again a significant divergence between what Protestants believe. I, I'm, I'm a pastor. I pastor someone and their walk with Jesus. Uh, I'm not standing in the gap as the bridge connecting them to Jesus. It's, a, it's a, an entirely different concept. Uh, thirdly, it's the concept of faith alone. Again, Roman Catholics wouldn't disagree in the sense that, that salvation, justification, that I, I'm justified before God um, through no work of my own but the work of Jesus. Where we would disagree is that, well, then how do I become holy? How do I grow? The Bible teaches that the just shall are not just saved by faith, but shall live by faith. The idea of sanctification, or, or what is the process by which we become more and more like Jesus? Um, the Bible teaches that I grow in grace, that it's not my works, lest any man should boast. I'm saved by grace, and I'm perfected by grace. Again, a relationship with Jesus that rubs off making me more like Jesus versus a set of religious exercises and works that I have to do to make myself more into the image and likeness of Jesus. Again, if I could make myself a, a good person, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die on the cross. Because through my merits, my works, my abilities, at some point I could have attained it. Justification, sanctification by faith alone is the Protestant model. But within the Catholic catechism, there are what's known as sacraments, seven in particular, that are also essential to salvation. Baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, anointing the sick, the holy orders, matrimony. You know, I did a little research in regards to the, the, the Catholic position about baptism, that you have to be baptized uh, to be saved. Again, not a, not a Protestant position. Again, I would point you to the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He could not be baptized. So how in, in, how in the world was he saved if he couldn't be baptized? Regarding the Catholic position concerning baptism, and again, Catholics baptize infants, infant baptism for this reason, and I'll go through them very quickly. One, baptism grants justification, which thereby removes original sin. And again, that can happen in an infant stage. Two, as a result, you, re you receive the three theological virtues, the gifts of the Spirit that enable you to grow, faith, hope, and charity. Then there's the sacramental grace that makes us now capable of believing in God, meaning if you're not baptized as an infant, you lack the capability to ever believe in God, meaning you have to be baptized. Again, not a biblical concept. Four, is then the sacramental character through baptism is imprinted, which makes you part of the body of Christ so that you are a Catholic, which then enables you to now receive the other sacraments. So you can't receive the other sacraments without baptism, which is why it's first. Confession. Again, you know, we confess our sins knowing that, that he is faithful to cleanse us of all sin 
and make us righteous before God. But within Roman Catholicism, confession is a continual process. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't repent and confess of sins, but according to the, the Catholic position, one confession reconciles us to God and the church. But wait a second, how does my sin separate me from God when Jesus' work on the cross permanently reconciled me to God? Two, they say confessions, how you're forgiven. But again, I've already been forgiven past, present, and future. Three, it reduces purgatory time. True statement. Four, it gives us peace. Five, it provides us strength. Again, I could unpack this more, more thoroughly, but I'm running out of time. I should mention that one of the, one of the differences between uh, Catholicism and Protestantism is that because matrimony is part of the sacrament, the merging of, of two individuals whereby they become one flesh is irreversible. Meaning that within the Catholic doctrine, if you get divorced, you are condemned to hell. Divorce is not allowed in any scenario within the Catholic doctrine because it's a sacrament. Whereas within Protestantism, there are certain concessions that are made by which divorce is permissible. Number four, a big separation is what happens in death. Now, regarding the death of the unbeliever, Catholics and Protestants agree they go to hell. But regarding the believer, there's a, a, a separation. Yes, the ultimate destination is the idea of heaven. But between earth and heaven, there is a, a third state of being, according to Catholic doctrine, known as purgatory, which is a place of temporal punishment for those who have yet to be fully sanctified. So it's a place that you can work off your transgressions. Now, in the olden days, this is why you would buy indulgences. For loved ones that are in purgatory, if you buy this for the nice price of $19.99, it will go to their credit and help them get to heaven uh, quicker. There is no place in Scripture at all that justifies the idea of purgatory. Again, the big problem with purgatory is that it minimizes Christ's work on the cross because it sets the scenario by which man can work off his sin. But if man can work on his sin, then why would hell ever be permanent? Because at some point you should be able to work off uh, your sin. Again, it's it's a non-biblical idea. It's not doctrinal. And, and truth be told, I think it's an abomination. Again, an idea introduced within the church uh, to exert power over people. Again, I, I, Protestants don't believe in praying to the saints. Why do we need to? And we have Jesus, the Son of God. Mary. Blessed among women. Sometimes Protestants downplay the importance of Mary, I think, a little much. That being said, she's not God, she's not divine, and she's not on par with Jesus as an intercessor, as an intercessor to God. Transubstantiation, the Eucharist. Roman Catholics believe that how do we get Jesus to indwell our lives? Well, we partake of the body and the blood of Christ, literally. If you go to a mass, you're not allowed to touch the, the, the bread or the cup. They have to be administered to a, by a priest because they believe that in partaking of it, it literally actually becomes the physical body and blood of Christ. But we're told that Jesus was crucified once for sins. So why is he crucified over and over and over again? Again, Protestants completely break. Communion is very important, but it's not the mechanism by which we're saved. It's, it's, it's a, a way in which we commune uh, with Jesus, recognizing his sacrifice, the body that was broken and the blood that was spilt. Again, religion versus relationship. You know, you look at the priest and the celibacy of the priesthood, and you look at the monastic lifestyle of, of, of nuns. Again, the whole idea of, of self-sacrifice to demonstrate one's holiness versus one's holiness being completely based solely upon one sacrifice given by Jesus Christ. A relationship with Jesus, my friend, is all you need. You don't need a priest and you don't need a church to intercede on your behalf. All you need is Jesus. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show. I hope you found this to be informative and helpful. If you like what you heard, contact your local Christian radio station. Thank them that they're carrying uh, this type of programming in your area. If you're listening on the radio, weren't able to listen to the show in its entirety, it is podcasted, Apple, Google, Spotify. You can find all of our contact information, quick links to the podcast by visiting outlawradio.org. Join us Wednesday night for the live stream recording of the show, outlawradio.live. Once again, my name is Zach Adams. I hope you join me this time next week for more of the Outlaw Radio Show.
You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.